Well, hello, and welcome to the Pro Tips for Musicians podcast, practical advice for an impractical business. I'm your host, Jim Henry. The show is brought to you in part by donations from individual listeners, like my good pal Maria Sangiolo, Bobby Bobman Fishman at Respect Productions, Kristen Andrews from the band Dynamite, the good folks at Signature Sounds in the Parlor Room in Northampton, Massachusetts, and from Club Passing, the premier listening room in the heart of Harvard Square. Together, we've raised only a portion of what's needed to produce these shows. You can help by going to www.patreon.com slash jimhenry and join the other generous listeners in supporting this podcast. Today on the show, we have an icon in the world of songwriters. Cliff Eberhardt has earned a well-deserved place in the upper echelon of the folk and acoustic music realm. In his nearly 40-year career, Cliff has done just about everything there is to do. He's written and sung jingles for national brands like Chevy, Miller, and Coke. He's been a side player for folk legends Richie Havens, Tom Paxton, and Melanie. He's opened shows for James Brown, Leon Russell, and Roy Orbison, and opened national tours for Little Feet, Bonnie Raitt, and Emmylou Harris. He's written songs for a production of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, and he teaches songwriting retreats all over the country. As a songwriter, singer, and performer, Cliff has recorded nine solo albums and tours continuously. His albums and performances have received rave reviews from People Magazine, The New York Post, The Boston Globe, and countless other national publications. Cliff is well-versed in most aspects of the music business, has met just about everybody along the way, he suffers no fools and isn't afraid to say what's on his mind. He's also one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. So let's say hello to Cliff Everhart. Well, hello, Cliff Everhart. Hey, James Henry. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Thank you for doing this. As soon as I started uh, doing these shows, I, I really wanted to get you on here. You wanted another victim. <laughs> no, well, I, I'm happy to do this. I'm well-versed uh, in, in some of your stories, so uh -huh. I knew... You would be a great guest. We've known each other many, many, many years. Yeah. Sort of often, we sort of go through phases where we see each other a lot, and right. then we don't. Yeah, so. because you say something. That's <laughs> <laughs> completely unforgivable. I'm so like that. So, uh, well, speaking of, uh, speaking of story, actually, before we get started with the whole pro mm -hmm. tip thing, I like to ask people if they remember when or where we met. Do you remember when we met? No. I don't really either. I just sort of all of a sudden you were there. Well, I moved like. here 24 years ago this year. And I don't think I knew you before then. No. And I knew you were, you were on Signature Sounds back then, I think. Probably, yeah, back then. And you were, I remember I went and saw you at the Black Sheep in Amherst. Oh, yeah. Why did you do that? Because <laughs> I, I, I was trying to, you know, Bill Morrissey had moved here. And I knew Bill and I knew Pete. Nelson. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones who convinced me to move up here. So the first week I was here, I went and saw you play. I went and saw Ray Mason. Um, I went and saw Amy Fairchild oh, yeah. play at the brewery. Back in the day, huh? Yeah. So I just want, it's like what I do now. If, if I hear of a new musician, I go out and hear him. I'm, I'm big on supporting local live music. Well, you're, yeah, you're, you're really good about that. I know when you're not on the road, you're and back here in the Valley, you go hear people play. I do. I like hearing music. Yeah. Well, that's you're crazy. <laughs> I know. Well, it's become a different scene that way, you know. <laughs> it's not as much support as it used to be, so I'm trying to change all that one person at a time. Well, I think, I mean, I was thinking about how we met when I was driving over here today, and I just sort of seemed like all of a sudden I was at your house mm -hmm. at one of your barbecues. Well, I started that the first year I moved here, those yeah. barbecues. So that was probably I. someone like Pete, maybe Pete Nelson probably mm -hmm. said, hey, you should come to this thing and meet cliff and and uh yeah that you used to do those you know pretty yeah. regularly in the summer well, bill bill was always there dar williams yeah john gorka was there john sometimes. Gorka, oh yeah usually we did it when john was visiting yeah martin sexton martin sexton <laughs> that was like a who's who of the folk world uh sure wheeler uh -huh. not sure wheeler well sure i came to one of them um who else used to come the neils the neils yeah yeah, it was, it was like a who's who. It was fun. And it was in bad form to play original music. <laughs> I don't actually, I was never here when any music got played. People were just eating burgers and, and, and drinking mostly. We occasionally, Eric, uh, who, 
who was on um, Erica Wheeler, not Cheryl Wheeler. Oh, Mr. yeah. Cup. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we'd pass the guitar around, but we normally would do old Beatles songs or uh-huh. blues songs, <laughs> you know. So, but I remember Bill playing once and, and Dar playing once. and I think I probably had to leave early because I often had my kids with yes. me. In those days. And I had the, the electric car that your kids liked, yeah. the remote control car. Yes, yes, the car and your, and your stories of, of Waffle House. Waffle House. <laughs> Waffle House. So, um, and speaking of stories, I, I, this is not normally how this goes, but I know a couple, I've heard a couple of your stories over the years, and I was, uh, wanted to, uh, hopefully maybe you would, would, would tell them again. And uh, one in particular is about when you met Donald Trump. Yes. Are you willing to tell that story? Sure, sure. (laughs) I was doing a show at the bottom line with Patty Larkin and David Wilcox. When when was this probably? 95, 96, Mm -hmm. probably around then. So he was, Donald Trump was hanging around New York at that time, probably. Oh, he, I mean, I had hated him since the 80s. I had a friend of mine, my best friend was an electrical contractor and he worked for Trump back in the early 80s. And he said he doesn't pay anybody. Ah. You know, it? Plus, you like to hang out at hot spots. So he came to the bottom line, and um, he immediately came backstage. And Patty took one look at him and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> he was there with Marla, and I knew Marla from, um, we both had the same agent back in the day. And we, and she was with William Morris as an actress, and I was with William Morris as, ah. a, as, huh. a, as a rock star. <laughs> And anyway, I knew her a little bit. And they came backstage, and he ended up stiffing me with his bill. They, he sent for his bill, <laughs> and they gave him his bill, and he said, he pulled out his charge card, and they said, uh, we only take cash, you know that. You know, it's like, he said, Cliff, do you have a business card? I said, yeah. And he goes, if you, give, if you pay my $20 bill, whatever it was, I will send you $200 tomorrow. <laughs> So then he asked us out for dinner, and David went. I didn't go. I said, no. <laughs> David went. And David refuses to t- talk about it. But, so I embarrass him. Every time he comes to see me play when I'm in Asheville, I always bring up Donald Trump. <laughs> but Alan Pepper came to the back room, and he said, okay, who do you stiff? And I was like, how did you know he, he stiffed me? And he said, he likes doing it. He does wow. it every time he comes here. Wow. And he said, did he pull the, I don't have any cash? I said, yeah. He goes, how do you think he got in here? We don't take credit cards at the door. <laughs> well, I guess that's, you know, how he amasses his, his small fortune. <laughs> yeah. I remember Julie Gold was there that night. She was insulted that his hair looked too much like John Lennon's. <laughs> this is before the. Right. The, yeah. Yeah. When he had bangs. Didn't, yeah. you, didn't you tell me a story about meeting uh, um, Paul Newman? Yeah. There too. Yeah. Yeah. I played up at his camp. Oh, up at in Connecticut. Right yeah, near where where Signature Sound Studios is. Oh, uh-huh. it's right down the street from that. Uh huh. Near Pomfret, he came to see Christine Lavin play. I met him. Well, first I met him when my girlfriend was an actress, and she was doing Pygmalion on Broadway with Peter O'Toole. Wow. And Sir John Mills. And um, he came backstage to her dressing room. And we ended up hanging out a little bit. And then he came to see me and Christine play at the bottom line. And he came backstage and he said, kid, you're a real kick in the ass. <laughs> and he had a trench coat and in every pocket he had a can of Olympia beer. <laughs> you want a beer? I go, you want me to wear your wood? He goes, no, I got some. I got you know? some beer. And then he asked me to come up to his camp and play. Oh, that's great. He was, a, he was a, one of the few people, I mean, through my girlfriend, because she was in a lot of movies like Pulp Fiction and... Um, her name was Amanda Plummer. Oh, she was in, you, uh, I didn't know she was your girlfriend. Yeah, we lived together for oh, no five kidding. years. Yeah. Um, she just called me, which is odd. But <laughs> well, she's a little. Anyway, so I met everybody. And you can't name a Hollywood actor that, or actress that I did not meet during that That's period crazy. of time. And most of them I didn't care for. Yeah. It got to the point where I, when she, she would go backstage after a show, I'd go like, yeah, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> you don't want to meet your idols. But yeah. Paul Newman was really nice, and Robert De Niro was incredibly nice. Where'd you meet him? We went and saw him in a play at the public theater called Cuba and His Teddy Bear with the kid from uh, Karate Kid. Macho? Yeah. Ralph? Yeah. 
And we ate dinner across the street at uh, Mary Astor's. And he came by and ate dinner with us. Wow. I, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, there's a million of them. You don't I, want to hear them all. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this is, you know, this is fun and everything, but let's get down to it. Okay. Let's get down to the pro tip thing. Now, all you right. picked a pro tip, and I'm glad you picked this particular one. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to read it. Pro tip number nine. If you're the opening act, never, ever play more than your allotted time. That's a good pro tip. <laughs> Why'd you pick that one? Well, I started as an opening act. And I was lucky to be in the village when Tom Paxton and, and Dave Van Ronk and Richie Havens and Melanie were all hanging out there, Odetta. And I ended up playing, opening for them. Those were my first acts that I ever opened for. And I ended up being their guitar, all of their guitar players at some point. Wow. But I remember the first time I opened for Paxton, it was 1985, I think, at the turning point. And I was already friends with him. I mean, we're even better friends now. He's a dear, dear friend. But he came up to me and he said, listen, kid, because I was headed up the stairs. That's never good when they say that. No, he still says that. He still calls me kid or Cliffy. Well, that's my boy. He says, he says, listen, kid, you don't get the right to use the dressing room. That's my room. That's the headliner's room. Don't ever go in there unless you're asked. He said, you have to earn that right. You have to earn getting to be a headliner. And then he said, if you need to change, you know, you could <laughs> be that. But I've had it where people have been in my dressing room with their friends, the opening act, eating my food. <laughs> Several times I missed out on food because I'm doing my sound check and they're in the dressing room. Right. Then they, um, don't, I don't have time to warm up. And then they um, leave before I play. And I've kept record of the last four or five years and it's like 300 opening acts. Only two played in their allotted time slot. Only wow. two. Wow. Yes. And so, and then all but, two, all but three, I think, left. Dar Williams was telling me a story, and I won't name the opening <laughs> act, but she had rehearsed an ending song with the opening act. I hope Dar doesn't hate me if she hears this. And so she called to the opening act, and the opening act never appeared. And she went backstage after the show. The opening act was with friends eating in the dressing room, of course, <laughs> in the green room. And she said, where were you? She said, I didn't feel like it. So Dar called me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the danger that people don't understand is John Gorka and Cheryl Wheeler and Patty Larkin and myself all and Dar, we all talk to each other. Right. And I talk to you about certain people, you right. know, where you go, it wasn't cool. Right. Even John, who's... I mean, John and I are the only two acts I know that every night go out and hear the opener. And John will say, you know, that person went long. <laughs> and when they go long, they usually really overcook. Right. You know, they go way... I had a girl that, that was opening for me last year that was supposed to play 20 minutes. And finally, after an hour, they got her off. Got the hook. And, and then she left. Her. And then she left. She sold CDs, signed. <laughs> so the, that's another thing. You can sell CDs during the break. Do not go out and sign if you're the opening act. You're going to piss the headliner off. Right. Because all of a sudden the break becomes an hour break while you meet and greet. Right. Stay to the end of the damn show <laughs> and then sign. And you'll actually impress the, the club owners in there. Right. I mean, the ones that go long, they never open again. Twice, twice I've had the opening act come on stage when I was playing my show to remove their equipment because they, <laughs> they had to go. Right. They said, excuse me, we have to leave. And one of them recently got in touch with me and said, can we open for you again? I went, do you remember that? <laughs> was I there? You came up on stage and got your shit. Sorry. And they were like, well, yeah, but we had to go. We had another gig. It's hard to fathom that kind of thinking or i mean they're not thinking that's, that's plus what it is. they came to see the headliner the audience right i did a yearly gig at um irvington town hall with richie havens every year for like 10 years where this is after i was his guitar player walter parks was playing with him i just did the opening the guest mm -hmm. set i've had many people come up to me and talk about seeing richie at irvington town hall and i went yeah i was the opener I don't remember you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's why when I'm an opener I, or did, you didn't sell CDs, you know? They came to see the other people, even if you're great. Right. 
So you're not going to steal the thunder of the opening act. They could be terrible, but people paid $20 to see the headliner. Well, that's it. And, you know, your job is to get on, do your thing, stay in the allotted amount of time, and get off, and basically stay out of people's way. Yes, get out of the way. Get out of the way. You know, it's not that people don't want you there, but they're there for the headliner. And so are you as the opening act. That's your job is to support the headliner. And that's the key word there, support. Right. Right. Also, don't pull the, I forgot my watch. Do I have time for a couple more? (laughs) We've heard that so many times. (laughs) Yeah. I used to, when I, back when I used to open, um, yeah, I mean, if I had 20 minutes or 25 minutes, I rehearsed. I rehearsed the exact arrangements. I rehearsed the, you know, the talking I did in between yes. songs, and I timed it. And if it was too long, I had to cut some stuff out. I'm kind of, I tend to be on time in most of my life anyway. That's the kind of guy okay. I am. Uh, but it's particularly well, you're important. you're a producer. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> on, on time and under budget. That's my, <laughs> that's what I try and do. Well, Dada... I, I played guitar for her, and usually when I played guitar for the, these people, I would be their opening act also. And I remember we were playing the turning, not the turning point, the town crier. And she would carry an egg timer with her. <laughs> and she'd sit it for 20 minutes, and she says, it's from when you leave the dressing room, 20 minutes. And if this bell rings before you're back here, you will never open for me again. Wow. So I do a 15-minute show. Right. When I traveled with Cry, 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 I was given 20 minutes. I did 15 Paxton always said that, too. He said, don't play to the last minute. Right. Because the, the headliner's watching his clock. If you start your song two minutes before it's over. Yeah, you're starting it too late. Like, try pulling that at the Bluebird. <laughs> they will literally unplug you. Right. Well, as, as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I've had people that say, well, I can't do my show in 20 minutes. I, go, I can do mine in 10. <laughs> I can do mine usually in one. If you can't grab the audience first song, you're never going to grab them. Right. And also learn. What do you mean? S- stay for the headliner. Oh, you're oh always, yeah. I mean, even yeah. if you don't like their music, you will learn something. Yeah. I remember we play, I was doing a Curvo one year with Bill Morrissey. No, not as the same act. We were both on the bill. Mm-hmm. And I went on first, and then this guy, who I've never heard of since, went on. And it's traditional Curvo that everybody gets a standing ovation. So he's standing by Bill backstage. You know how droll Bill was. Right. You know? <laughs> and Bill, Bill was just sour before he went on stage anyway. So we're back there, and, and he sits down with us, which is like, okay. <laughs> and he says, uh, are you scared? <laughs> and Bill said, of what? He goes, did you see how I went over? And right then they're announcing Bill. He goes, pay attention, kids. School's in session. <laughs> and Bill got three standing ovations. He got three encores. And he came back and he went, like, gave the sign of three fingers to the guy. <laughs> and he met every one of them. <laughs> so we don't, also, you, uh, you said something very smart. Get out of the way. We don't want to worry about your crap being in our room. Right. Um, you don't have, you can't warm up. Go in the bathroom. Go somewhere. Right. You know, that's the office of the headliner for that night. You know? Right. If you're invited in, that's something else. Right. Don't assume. And don't no. ask. <laughs> and don't bring friends in there. Right. You're supposed to be seen and not heard. Right. And also, a lot of times, like Paxton was a real mentor to me, and Van Ronk, too. They both said, when you're the opener, do not act like it's your show and start talking a bunch. Sing three songs and get off the stage. Mm-hmm. And don't... I've, I've had a lot of opening acts that, that tell stories about me. I heard that Cliff Everhart once... <sighs> <laughs> I had somebody open for me that told some of my stories. Well, you got some good stories, Cliff. Yeah, but I was about to go on. <laughs> I also had a group that played three of my songs, my three singles from my first album before wow. I went on. You know, I was very lucky when I came up because we had those people that I've mentioned were like old lions and they would kill you if you, if you stepped out of line. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to please them anyway. So there wasn't this kind of cutthroat thing that happens now with openers. You know, the openers always had, were respectful, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I opened for Leon Russell a couple times. I never met him. You know, it was like, he didn't want to meet you. Right. I was in the front row for a set, though, you know? <laughs> and I opened up for um, Carla Bonoff a bunch, and I never met her. And finally, Kenny White says... She heard you last night when you were doing your set, and she wants to meet you, and I ended up then touring with them, which was great. Uh-huh. 
So well, that, I mean, that's that's the goal right there. That's well, exactly I didn't get in the way. Right. I'd open for them four times and I never went over and I always left. I didn't hang around when she was signing autographs. That's another one. Don't hang around while the headliner's trying to meet his audience. Right. So right. I left. I mean, I, I did a tour with Kathy Matea about 10 years ago, I guess. Now she teaches at Swananoa, so we've become really good friends. But I was, I'd done like four nights in a row where we were in Arizona and I was walking back to my car and her guitar player came out and he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to the hotel. He goes, you didn't say hi to Cassie. I said, I don't like to bother her. He goes, she wants you to bother her. She wants to say hi. <laughs> she, so, uh, you know, I went, okay. But that was Right, kind you of, waited to be invited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, John Gorka stays here a lot. Mm -hmm. And he's one of my best friends mm -hmm. in the whole world. And I go to see him play at the Iron Horse when I'm home when he plays there. I never go down backstage. Never. And he's my best pal. Right. I mean, when Paxton played here recently... Um, Don Henry came up and got me because he wanted to see me before the show. But I know, I mean, I've tour, I just did a tour with John last weekend and or two weekends ago. He 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 likes his alone time before he goes on. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people. Patty does too. They want their own room and they want to warm up and they don't want to be bothered by anybody. Mm -hmm. And it's their night, not my night. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the whole the whole you know the sound check the warming up. The signing the CDs, that's, that's all part of the gig, you know, for the mm -hmm. headliner. That's, and, and so they're working the whole time. They don't need you to help them. <laughs> and you know what? When I love an opening act, I will go out and say, do another song. Right. I haven't loved a lot of them. Right. And sometimes... But I, you listen. I do. I listen to everyone. Yeah. And sometimes it, it, it kind of... It makes me stop and question when promoters want to put somebody in front of you that didn't bring a soul in and wasn't very good. It's it's harder to reel an audience back after a bad opening act than after a good <laughs> opening act. They're all excited if they hear somebody great. Right. Concentrate on your show, not on mine. Right. I mean, it is about getting ahead, but it's not about clawing your way to the top, you know? Mm -mm. No. And so, I mean, that's another one of these pro tips that sort of ties into this is don't give your CD to the headliner unless they ask for it. Absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of the same thing. It's like they, if they are interested, they'll find you. Right. And, and if you're a good opener and you stay to your time limit and you entertain my audience, I will ask for you to open for me. But people who go long, no, I, I remember the story. I was playing out someplace, one of those church gigs outside of Boston. And the opener went on, and then the opener left. <laughs> he had some place to go. If you have some place to go, why are you doing a gig that night? Right. <laughs> so the owner of the place said, oh, he left these two CDs for you. And I said, well, you can have them. I don't want them. <laughs> and the owner was like, well, he's a good friend of mine. I said, yeah, and he's disrespectful. He didn't stay for my show, and he wants me to take my time to listen to his songs. And the owner got pissed at me and never hired me back. But <laughs> it's hard being principled in this business. Yeah. You're looked at as a, as a nasty guy. And it's, I'm never nasty to the opening act. But I, I just am praying for the next time somebody plays within their time limit. It's so rare. That's, it's just it's shockingly rare. Yeah. And that they don't stay. And they usually make a big deal about leaving so people know they're leaving. Like, it's funny. I talked to somebody who actually did quite well. And she was like that when I first met her. And she said her manager, some jerk, had told her to do that, to diss the headliner. To, to diss the headliner? Yeah. What? Why? <laughs> so the audience thinks that you're more important than you are. Right, you're the shit. Yeah. Wow. I said, I, I'd been mad at her for years. <laughs> you know, because she did. She taught, told stories about me on stage. And then while I was playing my first song, she was breaking down her CD table, which happened to be in front of the stage, <laughs> and then signing, and then putting on a winter coat, and walking out the side door, not the main door, that you, you know, so everybody could see her leaving. And years later, she apologized and said, well, my manager told me to do that. I went, fire your manager. Yeah. This is about being nice. It's such a good community, and we're so lucky to get these gigs to start with that you can't skip from nobody to headliner. It doesn't happen. Right. You know, Anais Mitchell did a Midwest tour with me a while ago. And she's 
incredibly good, talented. Yeah. She has a Broadway show opening this year. Wow. She played under her time limit every night and said sweet things about me to the audience. And it was like, please tour with me all the time. <laughs> you know? Well, she's, she's a pro. She is a pro. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's the difference. That's the difference between being a pro and not being a pro is respecting the headliner. And we're, you know, talking about all the different ways that you are, you can, well, disrespect the headliner, but, you know, do the opposite of those things and you'll also, be well loved. Do not ask the headliner what they thought of your show. Right. If they want to talk to you about it, they will. Right. And sometimes they don't like your show. Right. Yeah, you're putting them in, a, in an awkward position. Well, I, I, I told somebody that they went long and they wrote me this email that I still have that was so nasty about why are you trying to ruin my career? <laughs> of course, she's never played since. But yeah, right. You know, sometimes when they say, well, "What did you think of my show?" I go, "You went long." Why is that a horrible thing to say? Right. Because what we do is, headliner's supposed to play twenty minutes, right? That means in thirty minutes I'm going on. So I come out for usually the first fifteen minutes of their set, and use the last ten minutes or whatever of their set to warm up. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I look and it's. 10 minutes past where I'm supposed to even be there. Right. And sometimes it happened at Rocky Mountain where I had to cut my set by 20 minutes because they couldn't get the opening act off. The guy who won the song contest got to play, and he was supposed to play three songs, and he ended up playing six songs and an encore. <laughs> and they were flashing the lights and everything. And, he just kept going. And the, the guy who ran Rocky Mountain came up to him and said, well, first, you'll never play here again. <laughs> Second, you just took 20 minutes away from Cliff Everhart. Go ask him how he feels. And did he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't happy. He was like, well, I was killing it. No, you weren't. <laughs> you didn't get an encore and you took one anyway. So I, had to, I, I was playing with a band and I had to cut four songs out of my set. That make you happy. Yeah. No. It's, so I mean, you go on with a bad attitude anyway. I remember seeing you at Newport a million years ago. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, you played your set, and people were going crazy and wanted you to come back and do an encore. But, it was 91. But, it, but uh, yeah, they are like, you came back and said, I can't do it. You know, we're too tight on time. I can't do it. Thanks, you know. Well, Bob, Bob Jones said, you're not doing an encore. <laughs> and then, uh, and I love Bob Jones with all my heart. And then he went, he said, Jesus Christ, they're not going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, go out and say, thank you, and I can't do another one. Leave him wanting more. And I was like, I was happy to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I actually recently did a gig where it was a song contest, and the three finalists were supposed to play two songs. That's six songs. Right. It took them an hour and a half to do six songs. They were supposed to do two songs, and all of them did, of course, a lot of new songs are seven minutes long anyway. Right. Plus they talked. They each did over a half an hour. So I was supposed to go on at nine. I went on at ten. That's rough. That is rough, and it's rough on the audience. And they left. <laughs> well, they were, they were tired. <laughs> one of them left, two of them stayed in the dressing room. And I, I, I had a woman who opened for me, and she came backstage. She said, well, they told me that I can only play for 20 minutes. Can you get me more time? I, need, I want to play a half an hour. I said, it's not my gig. Well, you're the headliner. I said, yeah, 20 minutes is good for me. <laughs> so she went on and said... Um, I was sitting with Pete Nelson in the audience. I wanted to hear her. And she said, I want a show of hands here. I know a lot of you paid $20 to see me play, and Cliff Eberhardt says I can only play for 20 minutes. Wow. And I wasn't the one who set it up, you know? <laughs> she said, and Pete goes, oh, no. She says, can I have a show of hands of how many people paid $20 to see me play tonight? Cricket. <laughs> Not one person. So did she play 20 minutes? No. Yeah, she no, and doesn't play there anymore. Right. You know, it's like, don't, you're not going to impress the owner who's busy counting money and making sure that the break stuff is set up. You know, the volunteers, they're, they're busy. They're not sitting down just to hear you. Right. Right. I mean, they're, yeah, everybody involved in this, it's a business forum. You know, it's, it's a lovely, it's lovely to be involved in the music business, but it's a business and... You have to act like a professional. Yeah. You know? That's why I have, on my contracts, I have right of refusal for opening acts. And I have canceled some. But they don't always contact me. Right. You sh- yeah. I mean, yeah. 
you show up sometimes and everything's different <laughs> than what well, you thought. There's there's two acts that I know of that will not play with an opener. Like that's in their contract. No, it's an evening with because because right. of this. Right. You know, like when we did on a winter's night. You know, Cheryl Wheeler, me, Patty Larkin, and John were on a bus for four weeks every winter for twelve years. We talked about this a lot, right? Because it, it sours the show. It really does. I'm I'm more respectful of the people I'm on stage with than the opening act is of me. It's kind of crazy, All right? You know, when John and I just did a tour, we had two dressing rooms and a green room. So if we wanted to be social, we'd go in the green room. I spent a lot of time in the green room alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, John, we come back because that's where the food was. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, we leave, we'd leave each other alone. Then we'd, we'd go out and have a, a drink after the show. With, with uh, the promoter? Or no. just the two of you? Yeah. Just the two of us. Yeah, because, no, I get it. People, if you're doing it every night, if you're you know, on the road for a couple of weeks, you know, you need to pace yourself. And so hanging out with people before the show and after the show, it's, it's tiring, especially if you're trying, you know, every night someone wants to do something because... Well, we went out every night. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's different if it's just the two of you. I mean, yeah, well, for together. one, we're not going to drain the other person. Right. Like, I went out one night and in Columbus and I had two friends that are both musicians and they're both, they both knew... The, and they went out with us, and it was no problem. Right. But a normal fan, or the opener said, can I go out with you? It's like, I know, John's my brother. I mean, I know what kind of mood he's in. I know when he wants to quit. And he knows the same about me. He knows that if I had a bad night, he needs to talk to me about it to get me on track and vice versa. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about, you know, John wrote this new song that I was just knocked out by. And I kept, one whole night I was just asking him, like, why did you choose to do this in that song, you know? Which he felt good about talking about it instead of like, well, you know who I opened for last time? <laughs> they always drop names like they're going to impress you. Like, I opened for John Gorka. Well, he's sleeping in my house tonight. You know, it's like, we'll, what's going on? You know? Right. Yeah, I, want, I don't know. <clears throat> what do you think happened? Like, as you said, back when you were sort of coming up, people, it was sort of a different vibe. Very different. Yeah. I mean, even people who were trying to get the gigs I was trying to get, I mean, Christine Lavid gave my tape to Will Ackerman at, at, at um, Wyndham Hill when he rejected her for the legacy thing. Mm -hmm. She said, well, if you're not interested in me, here's a song of my friend Cliff Eberhardt said it was my father's shoes. And he called me up right then and said, you want to be on this record? People don't do that for each other now. They say nasty. I mean, I've been told in the last two years by three different promoters that there are people there that are saying like ridiculous things about me to them. Well, that's not nice. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think by, I think what Chris Lavin said, she said, uh, when I'm on the beach getting a suntan, there's plenty of sun for everybody. If you're good, you'll rise to the top. You don't need to destroy another person's career to get there. Right. You know, it's like I, I've gotten, I got a letter from somebody saying, asking me to quit. Asking you to quit? Yeah, saying that why don't you and your friends retire so that we can <laughs> get gigs. <laughs> Right, clear the room at the top. There yeah, the and then she room. said something about, you know, and why are you doing house concerts? Well, the New York Times did an article about the first house concerts ever run, and they were in Jersey, and the first three acts they had were me, Richard Chandel, and Tom Paxton. <laughs> it was so they, they could be near you on a Sunday afternoon. You're in their house. Right. First time Cheryl Wheeler did one, she cursed me out for it. <laughs> she was filthy, but she called me and said, why did you have me do this? She said, they want to eat with me. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Steve Forbert and I did a show in Jacksonville years ago. And the opening act was an open mic that went from six to eight, I think. There's like 200 people there. I come out for my show and there's four people in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> They'd had enough. <laughs> it, well, it's the same. I mean, there's a whole. That's a whole other etiquette thing. There's a whole opening act. I mean, um, open mic club scene in New England that is really intense, and they're having them Friday and Saturday nights, and people put up posters for them yeah. for their open mic. Yeah. I. I mean, it's weird, and I'm sure you feel weird about this too because you're like old school like me. That we had a record deal, we got picked. Right. And back then, you couldn't get an agent or a manager or anything without a record deal. You really couldn't go forward. There's that many people I know that put out their own records that got anywhere. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, it's, you know, it's the Wild West. 
Right. And so the opener in their mind is just as important as the headliner, I think. But, you know, I worked hard to get the, those record deals and those songs cut. Mm. We have battle scars. Mm. <laughs> oh, we do. Yeah. And it makes you wiser, but it's, it's like, don't make me think about fearing the opening act. It would be nice to be excited about it. Oh, I get to hear somebody who might be really good. Yeah, know? well, I come out. I give them a shot. Well, you know what? I think you are... I don't think you're alone in that, but you're pretty much alone in that. I don't think a lot of headliners no. come out to hear the opening act, and so you get a lot of you get a lot of credit for doing that. Hi, folks. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we'll get back to Cliff in just a second. Most of you know that I'm a one-man operation. In order for me to continue producing shows for you to enjoy, I need your help. Please visit www.patreon.com slash jimhenry and make a contribution today. You'll feel good, I promise. Now let's get back to the conversation with Cliff. Well, the, the way Carla heard me was I was playing at this place in Atlanta, and it was an old theater, and the upstairs, the dressing room, they just had curtained off, so she had to hear me. <laughs> <laughs> I had no choice. <laughs> she had no choice. Yeah. But again, you know, I'd play all those shows with her, and I went off at an appropriate time. I didn't drop her name up there. Mm -hmm. I, I did my show. And I told one story a night. And this is long, I, I mean, this was in, you know, the early 2000s. This is long after I had been a recording artist. Mm -hmm. I still, I mean, you just don't do that stuff. It pisses right. people off. Right. It's not a, it's not a co-bill. No. It's not a co-bill. And I remember when I opened for Leon, I knew his manager, because his manager used to live in Carbon, Illinois. And he came backstage, he goes, go under. You know, Leon looks at his clock as soon as he hears the first note. Mm -hmm. Go under. I went, okay. You don't want to piss people like that off? No. They can really make it so you don't open anymore. I mean, when I hear bad, when people say bad stuff to me about uh, my fellow musicians who I know really well, you know, I've, I've had people trash my friends. I'm like, you obviously got that from somewhere because that ain't that person. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I've been on the road with those four people, with John, Patty, and Cheryl, the four of us, my whole life. And I know them very, very well, and I know them all to be incredibly respectful, moral, true people. So if I hear a bad word about any of them, I go nuts. Because, I mean, on the road, you, you get to, you've been on the road with bands, you get to know each other really well, yeah. being on a bus. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, there's been tours that I didn't like, bus tours, that I didn't do it yet. You know, I was like, no, this is not a good fit. Mm -hmm. But that fit was great. And a couple of times they would have opening acts for our show, which was crazy. Yeah, that's a little weird. Because it was a three-hour show. <laughs> right, and you've already got a whole mess of performers. So right. You don't, you know. You don't need to, anything and different. And nobody wants... I, I was at New Bedford a couple of years ago, and there was an up-and-coming person... And the song ran of me, John, and this young girl. And um, Ronnie Cox was the other one. Oh, uh -huh. And so Ronnie goes, we're sitting down in this round, right? We said, yeah. So we go down to the, the three, and then the girl stands up, you know. <laughs> and then um, and she played these 10-minute songs with, you know, an open tuning with just strumming for the solo for 10 minutes, you know. Uh -huh. And then we're going to do the last round, and she starts off the last round, puts her guitar in her case, and leaves. Yeah, after she finishes her song. <laughs> I said, too many open mics, you know? Yeah. And so the three were like, well, she's going to open for us. <laughs> I mean, what was that about? Right. That's weird. I know. That is weird. Well, and it goes to show you that people talk, you know? Musicians talk. Club owners talk to each other. You know, I was talking, Brooks uh, Williams did one of these uh, a while ago, and, yeah, he was talking about... Uh, in England, the the Cambridge Festival and how his wife works for, for you know, was on the on the volunteer crew and, uh -huh. and he hangs out there sometimes and that's what they talk about backstage. You know, is who right. who was an asshole, right? You know, well, Brooks, to show you how nice a person Brooks is. Brooks got me my gig teaching at Swannanoa. Oh, is that right? And at Sam W. He was the one who said, "Why don't you get Everhart? He does this stuff." That's Brooks. Yeah, I'm not going to hurt his career. <laughs> by teaching somewhere. I mean, it's just so weird. Right. Oh, don't get him. Right. Yeah, it is what we talk about. We like working with really fun people. With talent. <laughs> fun people with talent. <laughs> yeah, and we don't... I mean, I've done shows with you guys. 
You mean who aren't fun and have no talent? Is that what you mean? No, no. <laughs> we, we were pretty quiet before the shows. And I, actually, I asked you up and you asked me up when we played with Tracy at uh, the Me and the. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing is fun for an audience. Right. If the two acts hate each other. Right. <laughs> but it's funny, in my generation of people, and I include you in that, you're, you're younger, but we came up around the same time. Mm-hmm. I get along with all of them. There's nobody that I'm like, I won't play with him. Well, maybe there's one. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, like people like David Maskell just came up for a week and Robert O'Keen used to stay here a lot. It's all, we're all family. It's not like right. we're going to meet a stranger amongst us. And we all respected each other on the way up. And so nobody's, nobody's, I mean, I guess people have, you know, can be, can misbehave at times, but nobody does anything harmful. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, I don't know if that's uh, how the people coming up now feel about each other. I don't know, honestly. If there's that sort, same sort of, uh, you know, we're all in it together kind of Well, I, I was at Nerfa two years ago, and there was a bunch of people, a bunch of them that would not shake my hand. Like I come up and go, I'm Cliff Eberhard, and they just turn away. And then I was do- doing a song round with uh, this uh, woman, and she sang a song, and I leaned over and said, that's a really good song, and she said, I don't need your approval. <laughs> and Andrew Ratchet was on the other side of her, and he went, ouch! <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like that. It was, like, very competitive. I mean, but you have, you know, people like Aeneas coming up, who is who's not like that. You know, no, very, very nice. You know, they're treating it like a profession. And they're being professional. They also, they're songwriters. A lot of the right. times the opening acts aren't good. Right. Generally, if they're not writing good songs, I mean, I recently booked into this guy who was a student of mine at Sam W. And he just made an album. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he kind of, I, I went out for dinner and he kind of glommed onto me. And all he could talk about was how great he was. Like, have you heard this song of mine? People have asked me all about it, you know, and right. people say, why don't you play that as this, and can I do record that song? And I'm like, he said, you, you and Gorka must do that. I said, no, it's bad form to talk about your own music. Right. Why would you want to? Right. That's another thing. I mean, most writers I know are pretty insecure about their work. You know, it's like that feeling when you're on stage after you've written a really good song and you realize it's not. Have <laughs> 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 you ever had that? Yeah, uh, every time. I'm going like... <laughs> Oh, this is a piece of crap. Right. Well, I, you know, I was actually, I, I was watching a, 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 an interview you did with a guitar something or other four or five years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dream guitars. You said something that's true for me, too, which is that you know it's a good song if it makes you cry. Uh-huh. Right? If there's something about it. Right. And, and the other thing you said, which is also interesting, was that a lyric has never made you cry, but a, but a melody or the combination. The, yeah. yeah, it made you cry. And that's true. And so, I mean, for me, I forget what we were talking about just now, but essentially, yeah, I know something's good if, it, if I want to cry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, or the gauge. If, if I get the goosebumps. Yeah. Or I say, I say nasty words because they came up with a line that's just impossible <laughs> for me to ever, you know, like John Prine does that all the time. Like, God damn it. Yeah. You know, I, I love that thing. I also say in that interview... I listened to it recently, and I said, uh, the guy who writes my songs is a lot smarter than me. Right. <laughs> and that's true. If you go backstage to meet your idol, they're going to be the, as big an idiot as you are. Right. You know? That's, writing is a, is a different thing, and it's, it's not to be talked about. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to talk about it because I'm scared I'll not be able to write again. Right. Yeah. I remember the first song I ever heard that, did, that I was conscious went, oh, was... Um, I was 21, I was listening to Tom Waits. And that song, Waltz and Matilda, you know, Tom Torbert's Blues, uh-huh. he said, I begged you to stab me, but you just tore my shirt open. And I'm down <laughs> on my knees tonight. And I projectile cried. <laughs> you know? Or song like Song of Bernadette, you know that song? I don't. By Leonard Cohen, Jennifer Warrens. Well, I'd probably know it if you... He says, uh, she says, because she wrote this part up. Uh, Most hearts I find broke like yours and mine. Torn by what we've done and can't undo. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I met her over at Leah's house once. 
And I said, uh, and this is a true story, I was listening to it on a Walkman. Mm-hmm. I was wearing my shades back then. I was on a train going from Philly back to New York. And I was bawling my eyes out listening to that song. And the conductor came up and I, he said, listening to the blues? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, Jennifer Ward. <laughs> Who? Yeah, I said to her that I was projectile crying that my sunglasses came off and I was crying so hard. I love it when songs do that. And I do it all the time. I mean, I, I'm not embarrassed. You know, if I'm in an audience and somebody plays something that moves me, I'm going to... You're going to cry? Sure. You know it makes you look like less of a man when you cry. You know that, right? Thank God. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm half the man I used to be. Yeah. What's funny, because Tom Paxton was playing at the Iron Horse. And he started playing the song, and I said... I was sitting with Louise Masri, and I said, there are some songs that don't need to be written. <laughs> and he finished and he said the exact same thing. He said, this song really didn't need to be written. <laughs> or Janice, he had said it this great. Um, there's a whole lot of people that come to these song schools that don't listen to other songwriters, that have never been to a club except to do open mics. Mm-hmm. Like I take a poll. How many people here have been to a club, not a big concert, a cl- local club with a headliner and... And this one guy was talking to Janice. And do you know Janice at all? I No, never met her. Yeah. <laughs> well, she suffers no fools. <laughs> I love her to death. I mean, she's a dear, dear friend. But she, she is very much like me where she says what's on her mind. So this guy was going on and on and on at that school. And she said, look, who do you listen to? Who rocks your world? He goes, I don't listen to any other music because I don't want to be influenced. <laughs> I'm just like... It's yours. <laughs> she goes, dude, you really, really need to be influenced. <laughs> no, no, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah he wasn't uh-huh. ready. There's a lot of times, also, I think fate played a great part of my, of my adult life where I was 35 before I got signed to a record deal, which was old back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, Columbia even said, we'd sign you, but you're 10 years older than people we signed. So by the time I signed, I had a hundred songs that I put in front of Wyndham Hill to be recorded. You know, they could choose. Most people get their first 12 songs, and I want to make a CD. Right. And if radio hates your first CD, they ain't going to listen to your second one. So I think people need to, you know, my advice to up-and-coming songwriters, uh, there was a guy that opened for me. Played long. <laughs> Left early. It went in the next room, it was at a house concert, went in the next room and played for a couple fans while I was playing, and you could hear him the whole time. And then afterwards, played me a bunch of songs, he said, honestly, what do you think? I said, honestly? He said, yeah, I said, you need to go home for a year and a half and write, and not play out, and not make a record. Because you need to write that long before you start going, oh, I see, uh-huh. you know, I'm getting it, you know? He wasn't happy with me. Yeah. Then I bumped into him in Nashville, and I said, hey, how's it going? He goes, I don't know you. (laughs) Really? No, I've never met you. Are you a musician? (laughs) You don't know who I am? Come on. That kind of thing drives me crazy, too. That's happened to me a bunch. Like like people pretend they don't remember you? Yeah. I had a guy in, um, also on my contract, it says, this is another good thing for opening acts. You can put this in. If it says... Only solo acts as opener, no duos or trio. Uh-huh. Don't show up with a bass player. Right. You're still a duo. That happens all the time where people show up with another player. I go, no, it's the energy of two people on stage that's going to take away from mine. Right. And um, I always say no other people, but it happens a lot. And this guy showed up, I was playing outside of DC, showed up with a guitar player who I know. <laughs> So I can't say, you can't do this, right. you know. But he came up to me and he said, um, he, came up and he goes, are you Cliff Everard? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I can't believe I'm opening for you. I've never heard of you before. I said, oh. <laughs> I hope you like the show. <laughs> no, he went long. Yeah. And um, what he did, it was the strangest thing. He did a sound check. And he just kept doing the sound check while the audience came in. And then played through his time, and then played. I mean, he played for over an hour because he just never stopped his sound check. 
I, you know, I'm starting to wonder if it's just you attract these kind of people. <laughs> no, I talked to John and, and no, I'm kidding. It's it's there. That's it's not. There's I don't know. There's not a community anymore. I mean, I was lucky when I came up. There was no gigs. You know, there was like five gigs in New England. Right. And so we all hung out together at the same club. Like when I have students that come up and say, "How can I get a, a publishing deal? And how can I get songs covered?" I go, "Well, you got to move to a city. Like go to Nashville." Find out where all the songwriters eat breakfast. It used to be Shoney's, but Shoney's closed, so it's got to be somewhere. Then you have to go to the ball game. They all go to the ball game, and they sit in one section, all the old songwriters. And then you have to go to the Bluebird seven nights a week and pay. And maybe after three or four years, they'll talk to you because you're familiar. But you can't just walk in there and have somebody cut your song. Right. First day I was ever in Nashville in 1991, I was told by Nancy Griffith. I was friends with Nancy. And she said, go Shoney's. You know, and there's a <laughs> breakfast bar and just hang out there. So I'm, I'm at the breakfast bar. This old guy's, you know, talking to me as he's getting his French toast. He goes, you songwriter? I said, I said yeah. He goes, I'm Harlan Howard. <laughs> and he says, you want to go to a ball game? <laughs> Went to a ball game. Don Henry was there. There are all these old songwriters there, you uh -huh. know. And I was in. And I ended up getting cuts in Nashville because of, I wasn't just some guy come down to Nashville and cut my song. Right. You know, I played the Bluebird a lot. I did, I did everything a lot. You, you didn't make it just by handing somebody a CD. Right. Well, that probably shows like, you know, those, the voice and all that stuff where you, if you can just beat everybody else, then you're a star. <laughs> you beat everybody else up and... You know, I wonder if that might be having some influence on Oh, I think a, a huge influence. That's why they're all over-sing. There's a lot of over-singing going on. Yeah, I've noticed that. Also, when I, when I teach, it's interesting. Nobody writes ballads. Hmm. Everybody writes like mid-tempo songs. And I say, here's a list of the top 100 songs of, in, in, of all time. And probably 80 of them are ballads. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Ruby, my daughter... She's a wonderful singer, and she's really drawn to the ballad. She really likes that slower stuff. Well, I told you, hearing that little bit of a video for you guys, unbelievable. Yeah, she's it's, got it's a, gorgeous. And you guys together were great. Yeah. So she's got that click in her voice that makes you. Makes she cares you, about singing. Yeah. See, that's another thing. Uh, ballads, you get so much more opportunity to really sing. Right. Right. There's some emotion in there. And, and just, whoops, getting back to the point about. The um, you know the music business is a reality TV show, causing people to do all those pyrotechnics and and with their voices and really mm -hmm. over singing stuff. I think in some ways the audience is getting used to that too. Oh yeah, right. So that's that's part of the issue. Well, I tell all my classes too. I say two things. I'm going to tell you before I even hear you. You all need guitar lessons and you all need voice lessons. <laughs> then they say, "Don't you think I'm a good singer?" Yes, that has nothing to do with voice lessons. Mm-hmm. I can tell when you haven't had voice lessons, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, it's like they're pitchy and and once in a while there's somebody that you can tell really took the time. A lot of people go to those camps to audition for the famous people there. Right. Because like, so I don't know, it's me and Jada Ian and Tom Paxton, John Gorka, and Kathy Matea. So... They think you're going to go, stop the presses. <laughs> and a lot of times when you do say, like, why don't you try this, they actually get angry with you, like right. raise their voice at you and say, other people love this song. Like, why would you bring this on then? <sighs> you come to a critique class and you don't want to be critiqued? Right. Yeah, it can always be better. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to rewrite a song, you know, once, you, once you're attached to it. But if You know what? I work for a publisher and that teaches you. Right. I mean, I would bring in a song and say, you know, they're going to pitch it. They go like, you know what? That second verse ain't working at all. So you, you go back and you can do it. The trick is don't start playing them out until you. Right. I mean, when I did that play, the Timmy of the True, where I wrote the music for that, they would have me rewrite songs every day. I'd play the producer and the director a song. They go, okay, we like the first part of this verse, but we, you have to write a second verse, and the chorus you have to change to this. <laughs> I did it. By the way, I just got another one. 
another plate. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. What, can you say anything about it? It's a Greek tragedy. Okay. <laughs> about, about, uh, it's, I can't pronounce the name because I, I, it's one I never heard of. It's like Philocetes. Philosities or something. It's about a guy. Start with a PH? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's by Sophocles. Yeah. Um, it's about a guy, a warrior, Greek warrior, who gets bitten on his heel by a snake. And Sounds familiar. They put him on an island alone. And then they go back to the island to get him because he's the best archer in the world and they want to beat Troy. And Achilles has already been killed with another heel problem. Yeah, I was going to say. That's <laughs> so I, I, it's about being in pain. And I think that because of my car accident and what I went through, and the director also was in a car wreck or something, and he had the same kind of back pain and uh-huh. operations and stuff. I'm pretty sure I'm talking with him tomorrow, but I'm pretty sure that's why he chose me. Well, that's, that's cool. Well, it's hard to write about something you don't know about. Right. Like drug counselors who've never taken drugs. Right. <laughs> that always makes me scratch my head. I should be a drug counselor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like if, if you're going to write about something, you better have been present. Right. Well, yeah. Unless it's a historical song, but well, that's something different, right. you know. Well, write what you know, right? Isn't that the isn't that the deal? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could tell when people, you know, I I went to Curva one year and there was these five guys on the Threadgill stage and um, they were all singing, and uh, my old girlfriend Kara said, uh, "I'm amazed that they're so young and they've all been coal miners." <laughs> <laughs> Or all these, I call them beard bands, the, the, beard, the bands with a stand-up bass. And they all sing about the holler and the, the whiskey still. And, you know, it's like, what? Right. I would say, you know, <laughs> have you ever heard of the Lost City Ramblers? You know? Yeah. New Lost City Ramblers? No, they, they pretty much started that whole thing. They were the, like the first people that were college kids that went to Appalachia and came back with that music, with Mike Seeger and those guys, you know, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's no music history anymore either. It's Tuesday. It's what? Tuesday. <laughs> like when I mention people like who influenced me, like I'll say, well, Irving Berlin, you know, to me started popular music. And they look at me and go, who the hell's he? Right. Or I go, uh, you never hate White Christmas? <laughs> or I'll mention Jesse Winchester. who's was a huge influence on me. They don't know who he is. Or they won't know certain songs that like we all know. Right. And then the point is, I mean, look what's hanging on my wall. It's all the sheet music from the 30s, you know, uh-huh. and 40s. That I, I never said, like, who the hell's Beethoven? <laughs> I knew who all those dudes were. George and Ira Gershwin. Can I tell you a really good story about Sure. That? Right after The Long Road was cut, it was cut in, in January of 90, and it was going to come out in September, they didn't want me to play. I wanted to have a big release, you know. And my jingle life had died, so I had to get a job painting apartments in New York. The first time I ever heard a song off of the long road on the radio, I was painting with this guy that goes, <laughs> that music business is really working out for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to go across the street. I was on this painting crew, and we were up on the Upper East Side, and I used to go across the street and sit at this brownstone on the steps and eat my lunch every day. One day this old lady comes out, and she goes... Why do you come here every day? And I said, I'm really sorry. I try to clean up. She goes, no, 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 no. You're drawn to this place. She said, you're, you're a songwriter, aren't you? And I started, you know, the hair started going up. And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, I'm Ira Gershwin's widow. Wow. Do you want to come in? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> and we had a cup of tea, and she had all these original lyrics, you know, on paper laying around the house. And she said, you know, George used to live upstairs. Do you want to go up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> go up and there's this upright piano. She said, you want to play it? I said, I'd rather just touch it. Uh-huh. I ain't going to play the, the mojo on that thing must have been like, <laughs> I might have died playing a wrong uh-huh. note, you know. Uh-huh. But isn't that amazing that, that's the thing about songwriting. It's, it's full of mystery. Yeah, I think that's why, yeah, songwriters are often held up as mythical creatures, I think. Right, they're tapped into something that everybody else isn't. But as you say, only when they're writing. Otherwise, they're just normal people. Yes. Well, I think a lot of people, a lot of people that I know that are songwriters, 
that I know well had something happen when they were a kid that that carved them into that way of thinking. You know, either they were rejected very early and, and felt they had no voice in their family, and this is a way to tell a three-minute story without having your older brother interrupt you, you know. Yeah. Or, you know, in my case, I came from a really rough family, and, and a couple of my friends, same thing, where you start being... It's where in start, instead of acting out, you get philosophical about things, even as a, a kid. And I think that starts the... I imagine John Prine must have... It, it was pure hell for him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or Tom Waits, where something made you be that introspective. Right, right. And the, the weird combination of being that introspective and then wanting to perform it, it's kind of like how a lot of people are shy and yet boisterous at the same time. Right, right. Yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. I don't, I don't consider myself a songwriter. I mean, I can write songs, mm -hmm. you know, but I'm not drawn to it in the same way that, that you are or other people are. Um, so I'm still, even though I know how to write a song, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm, still, I'm still sucked in by the, the magic of it. You know? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't remember writing songs. That's how far away I go. I never remember why I wrote a line, mm -hmm. ever. Not in my whole life. That's why I see some other dudes doing it, you know? It's just that moment where all of a sudden magic happens, and, and I'm not as smart as the guy that writes my songs. I never come up with glib, you know? <laughs> it's like that time that, you know, I spent some time with Bob Dylan, and he asked me about an ending to one of my songs, and he said, did you write that on purpose to end the song or did it just come to you? <laughs> I said, it just came to me. He goes, ain't it a bitch? We don't write our own songs. <laughs> I thought that was one of the best lines I ever heard about songwriting. You know, I was watching an interview with Chris Miller on songwriting, and I don't remember talking to him about this, but he says, my friend Cliff Everett says, I won't even look at the song. I go, no, I don't want to know. <laughs> you know, I'll lose where I am, which is true. It's like when I'm writing a song, a lot of times I'll put the verse away and not study it so, so it doesn't influence the second verse. Mm-hmm. Because rarely do I, I write stories. Sometimes I do, but usually they're just kind of emotional, you know. Journeys. <laughs> I hate that word. It's one of those words I hate. It, it, like in songwriting, I hate the word journey. I hate when they say um, mourn. It was a, mor you know, it was a fateful mourn. Uh -huh. Yeah, right. Yeah, or yonder. Uh -huh. I haven't gone yonder. I haven't looked yonder in my whole life. <laughs> You know, when people try to write in that old kind of... Yeah. Yeah, you got to... Yeah. It's, you can tell when someone's not speaking in their own voice. Well, it's funny. When I, did, when I did The Taming of the Shrew, there were some people that auditioned for that that handed in discs, and they were all like thee and thou and <laughs> chant. You know, I was like, no, that's more My Fair Lady than Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, right. I just wrote like me. You know, I wrote a jingle once for CBS News in New York that I got actually an Emmy for where they called me up, I was in Alabama, and the guy, it was Mar Marilyn Ray Byer's husband. You know Marilyn Ray Byer? I know from her, UMB. Yeah. And he had heard a song of mine on the long road, and they, they, they were trying to get the scene for CBS, and they couldn't get it, and it was the last day. And somebody from his agency called me up and said, it has to be one minute long, exactly. It has to mention all five boroughs and New Jersey and the Yankees, and it has to be about um, staying in New York even after 9-11. Go. <laughs> and, it pays, and it will pay $25,000 or whatever. I could do this. I could do that. So I called him back. I said, Yankees. For one, that's a hard word to sing, you know. Well, it says Yankee Doodle Landy. And I said, it's going to piss the Mets fans off. She said, well, it's CBS, and CBS covers the Yankees in New York. So I'm right down all the boroughs. And I went, my first night game in the Bronx. Who else could it be? That's where the Yankees play. That's how I got that ad. Oh. So you didn't actually have to say Yankees. No, I said that my first night game in the Bronx. <laughs> and in the film, they have Derek Jeter hitting a... There you go. But uh, it's funny, because I wrote that on a Thursday, and I sent the demo to them. They had somebody else do it. And my best, fr they made the, the film on that weekend the video wow. it came out 
And my friend, uh, Phil, my best friend, calls me up and goes, did you write a theme for CBS News? <laughs> he recognized my writing. He said, only you would have written the, those lines. But it was, it was called This Is Where I Live, There's No Place I'd Rather Be. It was on every billboard, every bus. If, if they had paid me what I should have gotten paid, it would have been, yeah, three, four $400,000. Because they used it in seven cities. They just changed some of the lyrics. It was my melody and the This Is Where I Live, There's No Place I'd Rather Be. And it got an Emmy, and they accepted the Emmy. Because <laughs> they owned it. My name's nowhere on right. the Emmy. Right. Work for hire. But I like work for hire. I mean, I, I'm not really... In a part of my life where I want to make records that much or write that much. And it's not like I have a record deal or a publishing deal where I had to write 12 songs a year. That was my job. Right. Now it's kind of like, I hope something's on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what a lovely, rambling, freewheeling conversation <laughs> we've had. But I think it's time to say goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you very much, Cliff Eberhardt, for taking the time to do this. It's nice to talk with somebody who gets it. Yeah. Well, and I love your stories, and, and uh, yeah, so thanks very much. We're going to um, end on a, a song yes. um, that we'll use to go out with. Yeah. What is this song? It's doing? called There's Room in the City. And is this one of your songs? Yes. Okay. It's about, I went to New York, and basically Bleecker Street was closed down. And most of the places that I went to when I was coming up are gone. There's no music stores left in the village. Mm -hmm. A lot of the restaurants are gone. And it's, investors are buying up property in New York and using it as tax write-offs. So all the, all the places are gone. Well, who's going to, I mean, it's like, who's going to work for you when there's no jobs? Right. You know, who's going to cook? Who's going to do the laundry? Who's going to do whatever? You know, it's kind of weird how, right. so all these Chinese investors, they don't even live there. There's writing it all off. Mm -hmm. so, so. I used to live on Grand Street above a grocery store The neighborhood was safe I never locked my door But the neighborhood has changed Now the landlord wants more there is room in the city There is room in the city Room in the city No room for the poor Room in the city Room in the city Room in the city Ain't no room for the poor Well, thanks for listening to the Pro Tips for Musicians podcast. Practical advice for an impractical business. To find out more about what Cliff is up to, visit him online at cliffeberhart.com. There's empty stores on Broadway. All the art is leaving town. If you enjoyed this show, please consider becoming a supporter. Visit www.patreon.com slash jimhenry. There you'll find information on how to contribute, along with a great selection of rewards that are only available to supporters. Thanks for listening. Room